All right, Dave, we're live. Mate, firstly, thank you very much for doing this. I'm very excited to talk to you. Now, I, I wanted this whole podcast episode to be about you and your career and, and some of the things you've learned along your journey because it's been an interesting one. But I, I think it would be probably inappropriate not to ask you about the situation that's happened with the Rebels, um, considering your history with the club, uh, your knowledge of the people involved, the the landscape in Melbourne. H- have you looked at it from afar and what have you made? What have you made of some of the announcements that have come out this week? Oh, Dunks, I'm just really sad about it. To be honest, like I, uh, I um, spoke to some of the people there the other day and um, been in touch with a few guys. It's, it's just it's sad that it's got to where it's got to, you know. And um, there's so many good people involved with the club who care about the club. But I think it's it's you know for for me, it's it's in a way it's like a it's a symptom of everything that needs to change in Australian rugby. It's it's could be any club to be honest i don't think any of the clubs are in a particularly healthy state um the game in australia is is just in a really bad way um so there's some fundamentals that need to change you know i think joe smith's a great appointment uh, schmidt's a, a great appointment but you know he's he's fighting a whole ecosystem that's 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 broken um and um and so there need to be some radical changes in just the way that we think about putting the game together in australia that that um uh, that you know, no no individual coach or no individual uh, club is going to be able to overcome unless there's systemic changes in, in in the whole environment. You know, could you could you see that when you were in it, or is it something that has stood out to you being removed from it and going into another environment? A uh, good question. A bit of both. You know, like I obviously knew when I was there that things were pretty hard. Um, and and I'm fortunate now to be at the Stormers, which is which is probably one of the bigger clubs in the world. And you've got this like richness of resources and things that you just could never have dreamt of in, in Melbourne. But Australian rugby has some, in my mind, some principles, underlying principles around which they've constructed the the environment that that need to be challenged. Um, the common one I always point out is that you know that this argument that if we allow foreigners in. That they're going to that they're going to keep young Australian talented young Australian players uh, from developing. Um, that assumption is is just words, you know. No one's actually tested that, and yeah. so they've created all these rules um, that have ma- major major knock on effects for the for the for the for the economy of, of rugby um, without really being challenged. Um, you know, if you think about it. Um, what you have with with five teams is you have this um, uh, um, kind of demand for talent, um, but there's only a limited supply. And so basic economics that when there's a limited supply, the price of that supply goes up. So you've ended up paying a lot of money and spending too much money on too many average players in Australia because there aren't enough good ones. Uh, and so what we should do to solve that problem is increase the supply. And the simple way to do that is just to allow more foreign players to come and play. What would it, I don't think it would affect the best Australian players, but certainly they would be in a much more competitive environment. Um, the teams would be able to win. Um, and and I think it would just change the whole feel of, 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 of rugby. The other thing that Australian rugby has a real challenge is on, 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 the, on the commercial side, which is that if you think that we compete only in super rugby, it's, uh, you know, we probably play seven home games in a year. Um, now, if I ran a restaurant and I said to you, I'm only going to open up seven nights of the year, everyone would say to me, that's not going to work. You're not going to make money out of that. Yeah. And that's the same thing. 
in rugby. You know, we, as the Stormers, I mean, we're playing, you know, north of 40 games in a year. So that that model is much more uh, commercially sustainable than than seven home games. So we need to figure out, I don't think reducing the number of teams is the answer to that. In fact, I think we need more teams. We need more games. But we also need to say solve the, the talent uh, challenge and we need to make talent cheaper to the market. Uh, and the only way to do that is to to open the open the floodgates and allow us to 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 recruit foreign players, or at least allow some teams, say for example, the Force and the Rebels, who don't have the natural uh, playing talent in their state, um, to 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 bring in foreign players in the same way that, say for example, the Melbourne Storm are allowed to do. Do you think that the Wallabies not being allowed to play, or or sorry, let me rephrase that, a limited amount of Wallabies only being able to be selected from overseas, do you see that as a limiting factor in Australian rugby as well? Because from anecdotally, the, the people that I know and the people that I see, if they open the floodgates, I don't think many more players would leave. I think some would, for sure. There again, there's a, there's a major, major assumption that people make if we open the floodgates, if we allow us, uh, the Wallabies to select foreign players, the players will leave. It doesn't occur to some people that actually they they most of them most of those that have left have left anyway. Yeah. Um, and those that have stayed enjoy living in Australia. Um, South Africa, as you know, the Springboks allow are allowed to select foreign players, and and rugby in in South Africa is booming. Um, you know, we're winning World Cups. You've got a, a seven day bus parade with hundreds millions of people turning out to see the Springboks and wave them on that's that's what winning does so i think we need to again go back and test some of these fundamental assumptions that we're making that have that have strangled the game in a very very competitive sports market um and allow teams more opportunities to be competitive because that's what attracts people that's what attracts kids is winning um and we haven't built an ecosystem in australia that allows teams to win can I ask you a question from a coaching point of view? And I'm only relatively new to coaching, uh, and something that I've observed that it's very difficult. So, so am I. So am I. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. We're all we're all learning as we go. But <laughs> so, so, something that I've observed is that it seems very difficult to win unless you get your off field set up um, right, or your off field set up. Yeah that is set up to win on field. And it, uh, it seems to me that it doesn't really matter who the coach is. If your off field is broken, it's very hard to be successful on field. Is that is that your take on that as well? Yeah. I, I would say that if I compared the, uh, you, you know, the success of the Stormers probably over the past two years is largely that the head coach has been able to coach. Uh, and I think when you're a head coach in Australia, you know, um, I think you're expected to do a lot more than just coach, and it's it's actually not practical for for one person. I think in retrospect to think you're going to be able to manage all of that, um, and uh, you know the, the the other challenge I think Australia has. If I look at Melbourne, Melbourne's got I think 27 professional sports teams. So if you drop the ball in any area, if you drop the ball in, in in commercial or whatever, you get really eaten up for it. You know, it's not like you you just drop off slightly. The, the market gobbles you up. Um, and there's competitive talent for commercial staff. There's, uh, there's, there's, there's talent, there's, there's, um, competition for, uh, medical staff, uh, S and C staff, all sorts of things, um, that we're lucky in South Africa. We don't necessarily have to contend with. So 
you, you, you need to be really, really sharp. And I think if you if you drop the ball administratively, it's very hard for the program to recover. There's a little graph that I quite often show, which starts with, with governance and structure. And it's got these kind of um, uh, trending, upward trending lines. And it just it just demonstrates that if, you know, it's got a couple of versions of it. And it starts with if the governance and, and the structure are poor, the coaching comes after that and it, it even it might be very good but it never recovers from that poor start you know yeah. uh and in environments where the governance and the and the and the 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 structure are good uh you know good coaching and a good environment supplements what's already a good organization um that's where i think the brumbies to their credit have, have run, done such a good job for so many years you know they run a really full thompson down there and the others they just run a really really good organization they're good rugby men and they've done that for a long time and they understand their market, and and uh, uh, it, it it certainly helps the, the the coach get a good start in terms of trying to run a competitive environment. Do you think that a top down approach breeds success? What I've just anecdotally from what I've seen, it looked to me like the the sugar hit of Eddie coming in was to try and win the World Cup and hope that that would fix the problems. But what what's done is really shine a light on the problem. So it's probably been a good thing at the end of the day. But is that the approach you should take from what you've seen? Or should it should it be a bottom up, but you're still pushing the top approach, but you can't neglect your bottom? Because I feel like that's happened a little bit in this country. Yeah, I, I would say two things. One is that I think the uh, uh, the responsibility for control should rest with the pe- with the people who are responsible responsible for the largest proportion of the revenue yeah at the moment what happened certainly when i was there the majority of the re- revenue flew through rugby australia and then was distributed into the franchises so if rugby australia are responsible for the revenue a large part of the revenue particularly from tv rights and others then they should be responsible largely for the performance if you were to invert the model i think that can work is that the money flows into the franchises uh certainly for super rugby then they should have the autonomy of running that so that's the first thing is that there's a mismatch. There has been a mismatch of who's responsible for making the money. Uh, they give us, they, they they gave you whatever they felt at the time through the distribution model, um, but you were ultimately responsible for performance. And so there was like a mismatch in, in responsibilities. I think the second piece is that um, Rugby Australia would need to have a clearer plan. It's all very well saying we're going to centralize. I haven't seen that plan. I've, I've spoken to some people, actually not in Melbourne, some of the other teams uh, that don't seem super clear on, on on what Rugby Australia's plan is around. Okay, we're centralising, but it's it 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 doesn't feel like the silver bullet has <laughs> has emerged from those discussions just yet. You know, so that might be unfair because I'm not I'm not super close to it. But that's some of the feeling I get from some of the people at the other franchises. So Rugby Australia seem to have done the right thing in. In staffing up their high performance area, you know, someone like David Nusifora is obviously hell of experienced in that. So those are the type of people that need to that that, that need to need to really get their their hands dirty and 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 run this properly and come up with a proper plan, because uh, these kind of part solutions that change very regularly, etc., obviously sort of taken us nowhere. What has South Africa gone right in the last eight years? The the spring the Springboks have have obviously performed really well. You know, we we're just a, a very different talent environment because when I first arrived here you guys might not even really know the name we were playing in the curry cup and I saw this guy running around I said to one of the other assistant coaches like who the fuck is that he tells me that's Ivan Roos I'd never heard of this guy 
He was he was running over people. Um, you know, and Evan's obviously gone on to be a springbok and things, but there's another guy behind Evan Roos, Kike Morabe, who's the next Evan Roos for us, you know. In Australia, there's across all five franchises, probably only one of the, that guy. You know, the Bulls have got someone, Elrich Lowe or whoever, they've got a version of that. So, and that's because just in our our state here, there's a hundred rugby clubs, there's over ten thousand club players. Uh, you know, we last couple of games, we've got forty thousand people at the games. It, it, rugby is like in the deep in the DNA, you know. Um, so, so that's the first thing is, is not to be sort of flippant about the fact that we we have we have more talent. Um, but then I think what they've got right in the last couple of years is that they've they've separated uh, particip- elite rugby and, and participation rugby very clearly, you know, and that the responsibility of pro team pro organisations is to win. Um, and it's not necessary to grow participation. I think those are two very different uh, skill sets. Yeah. Uh, and I think sometimes because the game is flailing so much in Australia, the, o- the onus falls on pro teams that should be focused entirely on winning to have at least a good chunk of the organization geared towards developing participation. And really that should be two separate organizations, two separate skill sets. Um and um, yeah, um, don't know if I've answered that. No, you mate, you ha- you have answered it. I, I think uh, obviously, culturally being a rugby nation is a huge advantage. But I also think whatever they've done with the Springboks, a pretty consistent team over the last two World Cups. Um, obviously, winning winning um, gets the the community on side. You get more participation and more interest, mate. For you. Personally, what's it like being back in South Africa? Have you have you enjoyed the experience being home? Have you enjoyed being part of the European competitions? What's it been like for you? Yeah, we we've loved being home, mate. It's like we were we were we were in Australia for eleven years, which is quite kind of hard to believe. You know, like if I someone had told me growing up that I'd I'd, I'd work in professional rugby in Australia for eleven years, that's just an absolute dream, you know. So yeah. I think the the first thing is like I'm just <clears throat> she chatted with Laurie Fisher this morning. <clears throat> excuse me and you know if i think of how good people like that were to me you know over the years like it's um i'm very very grateful for that and i'm very very grateful for all the opportunities that australian rugby gave to me so so that's a big part of it but i think you know like you uh i guess anybody who travels overseas or whatever would feel the same you never quite make the same friends that you do that at school or at university or whatever when you go you know you know not the kind of deep friendships that you have. So it's been great to be back around those those type of people, and it's been great to be back um, with family. You know, which we obviously we obviously missed having family. So it's been it's been fantastic, and we're lucky enough to live in Cape Town. And I always tease, you know joke with people that I'm I'm sort of the unofficial uh, tourism ambassador for Cape Town. You know, I just love Cape Town, and um, I love seeing people come here and have a good time. And we've had quite a lot of our Australian friends come out here over the last you know two years and spend time with us, and they've loved it. So. Um, if anybody's listening and wants to come to Cape Town, you should definitely do it. Mate, it's funny. I've uh, I've never met a super rugby prop who didn't say Cape Town was their favourite place on earth. Uh, and when, obviously, South Africa dropped out of super rugby, there was a lot of devastated props, mate. Props in particular for some reason. I don't know why that is. <laughs> it's delicious. They used to they used to love the sushi at at the waterfront, and then uh, Caprice used to catch a few people as well. So, 
Uh, we would always catch people two nights after a bend. Or, it's, it's, uh, we're trying to do that to the European teams now who haven't seen the sun before. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been fun. Hey, what, are, what are the challenges being involved in Europe? What's that experience been like? Obviously, a, an enormous competition, uh, serious interest, different styles of rugby every week, I'd imagine. Um, and then you've got mm-hmm. the challenge of, as you said, 40-odd games a year, managing player workloads, making sure you've got enough people, keeping people motivated, all that sort of stuff. Mm. What what are the challenges that you've found being over in Europe? Yeah, it's a, it's a totally, totally different challenge. You know, Super Rugby used to be a sprint. You know, you'd play your best players every single week um, and, and you, you just try to win every single game. In um, in Europe, it's a bit different. You know, we, um, as you said, we're playing, we're playing so many games and, and you can go from thirty degrees in the in the sun it's at Cape Town Stadium one Saturday, and then you're playing like we were in in Paris last week with minus seven degrees. You know, so it's wow. it's this contrast of 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 uh, of different playing conditions and different playing styles, and it's it's been really good for our our growth. You know, like we we have uh, we're going really well at home. I think we've won uh, something like thirty eight of the last forty games at home. So we. When it's dry and uh, and it's a flat deck and all that, we, we're going pretty good. And I think we we've been a fun team to watch, but we we struggled a bit in Europe. You know, we haven't mastered um, those conditions conditions just yet. Probably the particularly around the the contact area where um, you know we feel like uh, there's some work to be done there. And um, um, European teams probably defend a little bit differently because of the conditions, maybe than what we do but where they do put a lot of pressure is just on the ball you know they put a lot of pressure to break down and um it's a, it's it's an area that we need to fix up a little bit in in order to keep going in the in the comp so in what was the Heineken Cups now the Investec Cup we're in the in the round of 16 and we've got a pretty easy draw so we play La Rochelle and <laughs> if we get through that we play one of <laughs> Leinster or Leicester so it should be pretty straightforward <laughs> uh, I watched La Rochelle the other day and uh I've I've never seen a performance like Will Skelton put in, like in terms of a dominant forwards performance. He was he was spectacular. Uh, I'll stand. It's not only Will. I mean, that whole team is just massive. They walked past me in the tunnel before the previous game, and I think some there's some moments where you just pleased your coaching and not playing, you know, because <laughs> like I just wasn't really sure how I would ever tackle any of those any of those dudes. So what's it, uh, what's yeah, the I mean, styles? Really what what style. about the styles of play, David? Obviously, there's going to be differences between the English, the Irish, the French, the South Africans. As a coach, that's probably quite a unique challenge because you get a lot of super rugby teams that are fairly similar, I'd imagine. Yeah. Fairly similar style, quick pace, good kicking game, reasonable set piece. But then you get a team like, you know, La Rochelle, Leicester, who are very big set piece, dominant teams. What's what's that challenge like from a coaching perspective? Completely, one, having completely different conditions every other week. Two, having completely different styles of game every week. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've tried to do is you know, we, we have a kind of overarching goal or responsibility. Here. We talk about making Cape Town smile. You know, Cape Town is uh, traditionally from a rugby point of view, you know, in apartheid, um, as you probably know, uh, there was segregation in, 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 in club rugby, you know. So so traditionally black or coloured clubs weren't allowed to to, to mix and play with, with white clubs. Um, and so there's this, there was this 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 sad divide in in the community, and so one of the things we've tried to do with a team, probably quite similar to what you've seen with the Springboks from afar, is that we really focus on just trying to bring the community together, you know. And 
Um, so, so our overarching goal, as I say, is to is to make Cape Town smile. You know, and we want to do that by being a, a team that represents everybody in the community. So we have all sorts of shapes and sizes and uh, religions and colours and backgrounds and all sorts of stuff. And um, we want people in the community to see some piece of themselves in us, I guess. And um, I think a big part of that, though, too, is 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 playing in a way that that is enjoyable, you know. So we we're unashamedly a team that's probably going to take you know far more risks than I would have taken as an Australian team. Like we throw the ball around, we try to run it out of our twenty-two. We we do time to time we just do some some crazy stuff, sometimes planned, sometimes a bit unplanned. Um, but it's 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 the type of rugby that that uh, that we think people want to come and see, you know, and and and, and is enjoyable. Win or lose is enjoyable to watch. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and Cape Town has been a huge part of that. And as I said, we've been pretty successful when the conditions have suited that. I think what we haven't necessarily figured out again is just how we can translate that, the feeling of that into a game that can work in, in, in colder, wetter conditions in Europe, you know, and that's, I think we're getting a bit closer with it and, and it's a bit, been a bit trial and error, but we, we're getting a bit closer. And the big change really in the, in the club, probably in the last two and a half years is, is, just the clarity about, you know, what we'd call our game model, which is just, you know, the uh, the kind of principles of how we want to play. And being clear on that, we've been clear on the type of players that we need to play that, the type of players that we recruit, both in terms of their skill set, but also their personalities. You know, we a guy who just wants to run over people and has got, uh, uh, you know, a pretty conservative background, maybe he doesn't fit the type of, the type of style that we want to play, you know. So that being clear on... What we're trying to do has certainly helped us execute it better, you know. How's your role different there as opposed to being a head coach in Super Rugby, or is it pretty similar? No, it's it's very different, Doug. So I mean, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I guess the way I'd sort of describe it is um, John Dobson, who's the head coach, is um, um, a really charismatic guy, and um, um, his job is pretty much to win uh, on Saturday. Um, and my job is to win over time. You know, I think that's probably the distinction. So I don't get particularly involved unless I'm asked to from certain games to get involved week to week. I think I have a more kind of overarching role, which is to try to make sure that the organization is in uh, good health for, for a longer period of time and that our game model is well understood and uh, is being refined and then is filtered down to our other development teams, our under-21s and our under-20s and under-19s. Uh, that we have the staff to support that, that the medical team and the uh, strength and conditioning team understand the model and the role that they play in putting that together and helping with things like recruitment. Um, um, and I think I think intentionally, you know, Dobbo Dobbo is a, is a is a really really big personality. I think it's one of his his great strengths. You know, he's a real um, uh, he's a really entertaining guy and 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 he's always got uh, great energy for for media and 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 presentations and crowds and things like that and does a, a brilliant job of marketing the team. So I think intentionally I've been quite low key around my role, which has been, which has been great for me too. You know, like I think it probably suits my personality a little bit better too. Um, I, I think I've, in a way I've sort of found my sweet spot, you know, like I've enjoyed this much more than being, um, I don't know what the word would be kind of front and center sort of thing. You know, I think, yeah. I think Dobbo's that's his natural sweet spot and he's doing it brilliant job of that and my job is really just in the background to try to smooth the smooth the way for the team and, and try to make sure that they have what they need to be successful 
Mate, there's a couple of interesting things there. I've, I've done a few podcasts with some really smart people about high-performance teams, and uh, a couple of things you, you just said there really stood out to me. It's, it's long-term health of the organization, making sure that there's a really strong vision and a goal that everyone's working towards, and then having role clarity and making sure everyone in the organization understands their role the the game model, how we're going to do things, and and really make sure that they understand that vision. Have I got that right? Is is that something that you see is quite important to a high performance organization? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I think the first thing on on the on the role clarity is uh, thing I often cite is the Gallup survey, which is um, it's a it's a research group that does survey around lots of things to do with working with work and. W- um, work environments and they talk about uh, you know what are the things that create happiness at work and it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs you know it starts with the most fundamental food and water and then it gets to the, the sort of more self-actualization stuff and happiness at work the, the equivalent of food and water there is do I know what I'm supposed to be doing number one and two do I have the skills to do what I'm supposed to be doing those are the first two things and then it gets to the third one, I think, is um, does what I'm doing uh, match, uh, help me develop and grow? And then, you know, so it's starting to get, as it moves down the, the hierarchy to these kind of self-actualization things. But the first two, do I know what I'm supposed to be doing? And um, do I have the skills to do and the tools to do what I need to be doing? So those are two really simple things, but they they often overlooked, um, certainly in the work at workplace, and the, the Gallup survey will tell you that, vast majority of workers in the US are unhappy in their jobs because they, they, they don't have clarity about what they should be doing. So the idea of having uh, a game model certainly is part of uh, just, you know, what type of rugby we'd want to play. That, that, that informs what are the S&C staff need to develop in an athlete in order to to create that style, to support that style of game. What do the medical staff need to do? You know, if we're... If we, Say, for example, wanting to develop certain type of ball carrier, maybe we need to increase ankle flexion or whatever, ankle mobility to be able to carry like that. And then the third the third one is, um, uh, and a big piece is, is around recruitment. You know, like we've passed up um, on a lot of good players um, because he may not be the type of 15 that we think suits our game model, or he might not be the type of 10 that we think suits our game model. Whereas I think in the past, every time a good player came up, we just try to grab him. Um, and I think having the ability to actually say that guy is our type of 10 or is our type of lock or is our type of hooker um, has meant that we have far less wastage in our recruitment uh, systems. And then we've also been able to unearth a few gems, you know, a couple of players, you know, maybe like the Marnie Lee Box and um, those type of players who were out of the franchise and weren't quite working, but we could see enough to know that they would work in our system and, and, uh, um, um, so, so that's what the that's what the clarity's uh, uh, done, and I think being able to bring the conversation back to, like, a, measure it against that type of criteria uh, for, uh, regularly is is very helpful. Recruitment seems to be something that very few teams ever get right. Obviously, there's the human element involved as well. If you've got a ten that's going to suit your game model, but he's an absolute fuckwit off the field, excuse my language. That's not going to work. How do you do? You have any tri- tricks, tactics, questions to assess the 
human side of, of the people that you bring into your organization? I think rugby is quite a small space. That's the one thing we we quite blessed with. It's probably different from soccer. Um and everybody knows everybody. So, you know, we do we do a lot of we do a lot of talking to people about bringing guys from the outside in. Uh, we are lucky in 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 the Western Cape that we don't have to bring that many players in from from the outside. You know, most of them go to school in our area, and so they come through our, our junior program. Um, and uh, um, so so there's very few players that we're recruiting externally. But I would say that, and it's probably a lesson for for Australian teams. It goes back to what I said about being able to widen the net of recruitment is. Uh, I remember going to Rugby Australia and listening to Vern Gambetta, who's a who's a who's a very well known strength and conditioning American strength and conditioning coach, and he was talking about his model of performance. His model of performance got four basic steps. The first one is recruitment. The second step is get fit. The third step is train with intensity, and the fourth step is perform. Now, there's two interesting things he adds to that, which is that all of those things must be done in sequence. Um, you know, you, you can be the best coach in the world, but you can't train with intensity if the guys aren't fit. So you've got to do the fit, fit part first in order to be able to train with intensity, for example. Yeah. And you can't perform if you haven't done the recruitment part. Um, so that's the first piece. But the second piece is that there's a layer of specificity to those things that is really the difference between amateur sport and elite sport. You know, if I talk about getting fit, well, we're not talking about just getting generically fit, just running guys up and down. We're talking about the specificity of being fit in order to play the way that we are hoping to play. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, the, the level of detail and planning is needed to, to create that, that specificity. But it's, it's, it's an area where I think, um, you know, I'll use Kevin foot as a, as an example at the, at the, at the rebels. I, I know footy really well. And I can tell you that footy is as good a coach as I've met anywhere in South Africa. Um, but he probably doesn't get the, the the recognition of that in the same way that some South African coaches do. And that's really because step one, his ability to recruit at, at the high level that some of the South, his South African counterparts can is limited, you know. Um, and um, um, that's the first, if I was looking at the Australian environment, that's the, the first problem you've got to fix. If you don't get the best players, you're not going to win. Uh, and better players make better coaches. If we don't figure out how we're going to keep, we're going to get more talent, how we're going to keep more talent, we're going to do all those things, every other plan that we put in place is not going to work. Um, and I don't think we, I certainly haven't heard yet that we have a really clear picture on how we're going to do that. But I want to go back to your coaching in Australia, and I, I want to force you to get a little bit introspective, if that's okay. One thing I've noticed with, with coaches, people who've been in high-performance environments, is they're not very good at looking or saying what they've done well. So firstly, could you tell me, as you look back, what did you do well in your time in Australia? And what are some of the lessons that you learned that you've taken into your job at the Stormers? I think the lot, you know, I'm proud of the fact that in the last three clubs I've been at, all three of those clubs have had the best season in their in their history. Uh, and, and, and I guess on some level, some of those, some of those markers are quite low because some of those are, are small clubs and and haven't uh, you know probably to the outside world aren't recognised. But I know that the immense effort it took to produce some of those outcomes, and I think we had a 
um, a 70% win rate over the four years that I was in Melbourne of our Australian rivals, you know, in the, in the Australian conference. And I'm proud of that because in the way that's, you know, it, it feels like that's the um, uh, like for like salary cap talent environment where we were able to be competitive, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I think also the thing I'm most proud of is actually the changes I've made since leaving Australia, I would say, is that, um, you know, I wasn't at my best in, in Melbourne. I think particularly COVID and things was, it was a really difficult time for me. And I was, I was, I was coaching for results. I would say is probably the best way to describe it. Like I was really, uh, outcome focused and, um, where I felt when I was in Perth, I had really good relationships with the players, which was probably because I'd started out as an assistant coach. You know, I had very different responsibilities and I had more time yeah. to to interface with the players and build relationships. And I didn't spend, invest that same energy into doing that in Melbourne. And um, I think watching someone like Dobbo, who, who yeah, relationships and things are his absolute sweet spot and realizing how powerful that is in a team, um, I think has made me change a little bit you know i would say and, and and learn a little bit and um so i'm very grateful for 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 dobbo for for that and i think i'm probably in a much happier space personally because of that you know like i'm i'm not that fussed about the outward stuff anymore or the appearances or the whatever i've, I've enjoyed being quite low-key and i've enjoyed just trying to connect with people and, and do those sort of things that's a great observation, mate. It's it's funny. You get into – I promised myself in the 2023 Shoot Shield season that win, lose, or draw, I wasn't going to care about the outcome. I was just going to work really hard and try my best and have a good time and enjoy it. Beat Randwick round one. Absolutely went out the door. It was all about winning. And, and I probably <laughs> think it was a mistake. And, and the, if I really focused on the games that we actually did lose, I put so much emphasis on winning that it was almost counterproductive to the performance. Was that is that how you look back on on your time? Is that did you have a similar experience? De definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think just just if I if I look back on it as in, in some way, there was opportunities missed in Melbourne if I'd handled myself differently, you know. But what 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 we tend to do. Uh, not not only in Australian rugby, but but I think just generally in professional sport, is you hire people because of their ability to bring groups of people together and and perform and do all those things. But we then, we, as an, as organisations, we don't tend to support them more deeply. We we spend all of our energy supporting the players. We spend yes. very little energy supporting the coach. You know, um, yes. and if I compare, you know, in in, in Melbourne. Uh, I was the head coach. I was also doing recruitment. I was I was doing all those sorts of things. At the Stormers, you know, um, I have somebody under me. We have the head coach, and then we have a separate person who who does all of the negotiation with the agents and things like that. So we've taken what was the job of one person in Melbourne, and we split it at least between three, probably four people uh, at the Stormers. And so that as as organisations, I think, you know, um, and it's and it's all about money and resources, isn't it? But it's it's it's. Uh, it's making sure that we allow people to do the jobs that we hire, hire them to do, I think, in a way, and freeing up their, their 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 plates so that they can focus on the things that they're specialists at and not asking them necessarily to do things that are outside of their their sweet spot, you know, because then the then the results are gonna are gonna fall away. Mate, what's your relationship like with failure? And the reason I ask. It's a bit of a theme for the podcast. Something I've seen a lot with younger coaches that I've worked with is they're afraid to make mistakes. They're afraid to try new things. 
they're afraid of failing. They're afraid of losing. They don't want to step outside the box of what other people have done because they've seen what's worked. And, and because of that, they may not push themselves to be as good as the, they could be because of that fear of failure. So if you don't mind, yeah. what's I've, what's your relationship with it? Yeah, I've, I've heard people say, you know, they, they they use failure as a lesson and all that sort of stuff. But I'm not sure I, I do. Um, I, uh, I think in a way... Um, um i think the i think maybe it's a, it's a, it's also it's also something that happens when you get a bit older is you realize that actually in life very few people actually give a fuck you know what i mean like they don't really care about you yes. um and i think when you're younger you're really hung up on this idea of failure but it, for me personally it's a lot of like external pressure you know that probably wasn't even real but it, it's 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 how you think about the world you know and then you you realize later actually like everyone's just dealing with their own shit and no one actually really cares, you know. Yes. Um, and it's the I think what's what's also been a big shift for me is obviously I want to win. I'm competitive. I want to do all of those things. But my whole it's not like my whole identity hangs on that, you know. Like I'm actually when I'm away from rugby and with my kids or whatever. In the past, rugby was always there. It was all, I was always thinking about it. Even my wife would stare at me out for dinner, or whatever. And she said, "You think about rugby, aren't you?" And it's like I don't do that anymore. Like I'm I'm I can park that. I'm much better at sort of saying. Um, you know, I'm 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 giving my best I can be when I'm there, but when I'm away, I'm able to sort of say, actually, there's another part of my life I got to look I got to look after here. And then, uh, I think the guy who wrote that book, I forget his name, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. Yeah, uh, he talk he speaks about the three, you know, through all his research, he talks about the three things that he thinks creates happiness. And the first one is, you know, are you surrounding yourself the majority of time with people that you like, with good people? The second one is, uh, are you doing work that's meaningful? Uh, and the third one is, do you look after your body? Uh, you're looking after your physical health, you know, and those are the three key things. And really, I agree with them. I think when you really come down, when you really think about being happy, it's very hard to look past those three people. And I think one of the things about Cape Town is, and South Africa in general, is it's it's a beautiful place and and it's got so much to offer, but there are some really, really deep challenges, you know, and, and the meaningful work piece for us here is like, you know, if we can, if we can use rugby to bring the community together and, um, to kind of build a, a, a spirit uh, that 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 maybe didn't exist in the past. That's a really powerful social contribution that we can make as a, as a sporting team, you know. So uh, it it really binds us together, and I think people here believe in that very deeply, in that mission very deeply, and um, it makes everything you do really really meaningful and and uh, um, and, and enjoyable. It's it's funny when you have uh, uh, maybe a purpose outside of yourself especially when you're going to work every day and committing so much of your time to something it just makes it so much more meaningful i guess it's it makes if i'm going to commit my life to this job we have this big purpose and it seems to be a really good way to get everyone together and to really drive people as well that's it i mean it really, it really aligns behaviors you know it's like uh we're all in this together and we've all got to we've all got to pull our weight we've all got to make the boat go faster in order to achieve it, you know, and we can't afford people to drop off that boat, you know, and we can't afford people to go in their own directions. Um, and um, when, when, as it does here, I think that idea permeates sort of everything that we do. And, um, um, and, and, and I think it, it helps a lot just in driving the energy and, 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 the, and the, and the focus of the whole building, you know, what are we trying to, what are we trying to achieve? Mate, I, I, 
really appreciate your time. I've got a couple more questions for you, and then I'll let let you get back to your your day, mate. Talking, looking back in, on your career, looking at mentors that have helped guide you, helped shape you, even maybe not direct mentors, people that you might have learned from in passing. Can you talk about some people that have helped you along the way? And as a coach, as a leader, as a human, how important is having mentors to learn from? Yeah, look, I I, I think uh, there's been so many people that have been generous with their time. And very often that's been assistant coaches for me, other assistant coaches, you know, like I was lucky enough to to start in Super Rugby. I think when I, I think I was about 26 when I first started with the Brumbies. Um, and I was too young, you know, really, to be honest. And there was, I was coaching in the room. Jake was obviously there, but um, Laurie Fisher and, and and Bernie Larkin were there. And, you know, Bernie was one of the icons of world rugby. You know, he he really could have, and, and I think a lot of people in his shoes would have just totally dismissed me. But those type of people gave time, you know, and they, they helped me think through things and uh, little ideas here and there. And so and there's lots of those coaches along the way. And so that's the one thing is that, you know, you, you don't necessarily need, I think, one specific person, but I think investing in some relationships with those people and 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 uh, not only not only upwards but downwards too. You know, when you have a young coach now coming up to you, just making sure that you can spend some time with them and show the same uh, care that that probably somebody showed to you back in the day. You know, pay it forward or whatever the idea is. Yeah. I, I really think that one of the things probably goes back to what we were just talking about. Gary Kirsten said it to me. Uh, Gary Kirsten was the Indian cricket coach. He was having a cricket only. He won the World Cup with India, um, and he took over the Indian team. and I hope he doesn't mind that I'm bastardizing his story, but he took over the Indian team and he went to go see Sachin Tendulkar, who's probably one of the greatest cricketers of all time, and was the captain of the team. and uh, And he said to, to Sachin, well, "You know, what, what do you need from me?" And Sachin just said, "You know, all I need is a friend. You know, I just need I just need someone to talk to." Uh, and that's that's actually the thing. You know, like I think there's. You know, mental can take many forms, but I think coaching can be quite a lonely spot. And um, I forget the the previous coach, coach at Collingwood, um, can't blank on his name. He he said to me once, you know, when you're the head coach, you must never go to, to dinner first because you put your plate down at the at the table and all the other tables fill up around you. No, no one sits with you. you know? um, and it's kind of symptomatic that like being a head coach can be quite a lonely place. And so sometimes what you need is just a friend. You know, you don't actually need somebody necessarily to give you advice. I think it's quite hard for business people to understand the world of sport. I think I've had some some really successful business people, you know, try to to assist, but it's 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 just very very different. You know, sport is a is a is an unusual place, and um, I think what you need to look for is somebody that you can just talk to and just unload on a little bit and drink a few beers with and do that sort of stuff. You know, business people don't have random people yelling at them from the sidelines when they're not doing their job. Or, or when other people no, in their, their employee are doing their job as well as like no it's funny I mean like I I, I you know like obviously we've had look, had to present to a lot of boards over the years and 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 everybody on those boards is well intentioned you know like to give up your time I mean that's that's the first thing you know let, let's talk about Paul Doherty at the rebels like Doc's a hell of a good guy who's given a lot of money to to to, to sport for no apparent personal gain and people are People are ripping into him on social media. It's like, well, hang on a second, you, you didn't put your money in your out of your pocket and 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 fund the game for the for the love of others. You know what I mean? Like True. it's it's just un, unfair criticism. Uh, and he's a, and he and and there were a lot of people on that board and on the Force board and on the Brumbies board that were very successful business guys and on the Stormers board. Um, but in the same way that if if I walked into a room and started to try to talk to you about leverage finance or you know equity buyouts or whatever, 
you'd be able to tell in two seconds, I don't know what I'm talking about, you know. And it's the same as rugby, you know. You've got some some pretty intelligent people who've been working at this for 20 years. They understand the game a lot better than, you know, just throw the ball to the wing sort of thing, which is, you know, our parents' kind of <laughs> interpretation of the game. Um, and um, uh, they can see in two minutes when you start, wanting to justify selecting a player or whatever that you don't know what you're talking about. You just, we just, we just, uh, you're actually just wasting their time with a discussion like that. You know, one of the things I, I really liked in, in Perth is we had Scott Stanley fourth on, on the board, you know, um, and, uh, and Scott and Spanner was obviously a former player. First of all, hell of a good guy and, and a former player, but I think that was really useful for me because, you know, he understood, like if I was trying to justify to the board, we need to fly a day early to get over the jet lag or, we need, you know, uh, these GPS units or we need these, whatever. He he knew, he understood from a performance point of view why those things were necessary. And he was able to kind of be a voice for me in, in on the board, you know. And I think sometimes uh, where, the, where the board is just so foreign to the subject matter, I don't know what it is about sport, but we all think, you know, everyone thinks they're kind of experts and realize what they don't know, you know. And um, um, I guess that's my little whinge. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the one I like is why are we kicking it so much? That's the that's the one. Yeah. I like. <laughs> hey, yeah, um, exactly, mate, yeah. I got some rapid fire questions for you, mate, and then I'll, I'll get you out of here. Mate, do you, do you have any books that you frequently recommend to people? Do you have any books that you like personally? Do you read much? Yeah, I, I just read a book that I haven't enjoyed as, as much for a long time, which is the Psychology of Money, which is a funny, a funny probably a funny choice. It's just it's just about. Um, uh, uh, I think there's a there's a couple of things in it, but it's this the idea of the balance between uh between risk and safety. You know, like I, I really like that concept in in the book, and um uh if, if and and it, the other thing it talks about is is this idea of of having economic freedom, which is uh the 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 freedom to not have money is like the main decision maker in your life. You know, and yeah um gave some real practical sort of guidelines around that and i think i think that uh, i i just really enjoyed that i think from a from a coaching point of view um the two books i really liked is uh tom english actually gave it to me is ego ego is the enemy by ron holiday yeah um it's a it's pretty simple idea um but it's much much harder like most things in life probably much harder to do in 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 practice and then um uh, I read a lot of uh, 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 teaching books, actually. Um, so I go to quite a lot of teaching conferences and things because I think I think really that's what coaching is. You know, coaching is teaching, just different subject matter, really. Um, so I'm I'm interested in how to be a better teacher. You know, like how to how to lay out a meeting or a presentation in a, uh, or a lesson <laughs> to the players in a way that allows them to learn it easily or to lay out concepts better and and those type of things. So I, I go to quite a lot of those those type of things and read quite a lot around that. Do you listen to many podcasts? Yeah, I do. Um, um, Ricky, uh, not Ricky Gervais. Uh, what's his first name? Um, Gervais. He had, a great, uh, he had a great one back in the day. Hilarious back in the day, but he, he doesn't do it anymore. <laughs> uh, Finding Mastery is the name of the podcast. Um, Finding Mastery. I enjoy things like that. Sports psychologist at, at, the, at the Seahawks. Um, so he interviewed a lot of, he interviews a lot of good performance people and sports people. Um I enjoy I enjoy podcasts. I actually I actually enjoy listening to Audible. So that's another thing that like I get into is just finding a way. I link it up to my. It's amazing what you can do. Just link it up to my, my Kindle, and you can sort of carry on the book as you drive somewhere. You know, so you get through a fair bit of, of reading and and uh, 
um yeah so i enjoy doing that are there is there any frequent advice that you would give young coaches like if someone's asking you for yeah. advice what would you give them yeah uh, yeah i would say so so the first thing is that uh probably in terms of your career um i think luck plays an incredible role uh in those that become professional coaches and those that win world cups and things and being a bit flippant but and those that don't i think um don't underestimate the value of luck and and if you are a professional coach you're lucky enough to do that don't don't think of yourself too highly and don't think of yourself above those that aren't and then probably vice versa i think if you're a community coach you know, you maybe just didn't get the break that a professional coach got or met the right person or came at the right time or whatever. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're a bad coach. And I think um, trying to navigate your way into that is hard. I think what you have to do is just just carry on doing good work, you know, and just be enthusiastic about the place you're in, try to be present in the place you're in, uh, and, and opportunities will open up for you, I think. Uh, and I think the second piece is that I believe a lot in, uh, in terms of actual on-field coaching is this like basic idea that the game is the best teacher, you know, like you you have to be a very, very good coach to simulate things out of drills, et cetera, and design drills that actually transfer into the game. Um, so there's a really big difference between organizing and coaching. Um, organizing is activity, people running around, all looks great, feels good, but people aren't actually getting better. Um, whereas coaching is the ability to move a player from point A to point B and improve them. You know, that is a much, much harder task. Um, and if you don't know what you're doing, the best way to start is just by playing games, um, variations of games. You know, you can do it in smaller numbers. You can do, you can have all sorts of kind of constraints in the game, but actually the closer you are to mimicking the game, the more reps, the more, the more reps of something that resembles the game, the players are going to get. If I think of soccer, for example, like, when I watch my son play, you know, all the parents, he's six or seven, all the parents on the side are saying, pass the ball, pass the ball. And I understand that from like a community point of view, but if he passes the ball, he's never going to learn to dribble. You know what I mean? So now the parents are interfering in the game and they're taking him, they're, they're taking him away from the game, uh, what the game would allow, otherwise allow him to do. And therefore he's not learning a skill that he will need if he's going to go further in, in the sport, you know? So yeah. just allowing them just to play the game without too much interference is the best uh, is the best way of developing players if you're not sure. Then what you might do is use uh, uh, a smaller skill to get more repetition of something within the game that might need work. You know, maybe your passing wasn't good that day or whatever. So you might then get more reps in uh, by just isolating that for a fraction of time. But at least uh, two-thirds of the time for me in, in, in training for, for young coaches should be in playing games. Yeah. Um, when I watch my, my daughter play tennis, uh, or, or hockey, what they do is the coach stands at the top of the D, all the players line up in a line and they hit the ball into the coach, the coach knocks it back and then, they sh and then the player shoots. But what you have is two things. One, you have the coach getting the most reps out of everybody. So it's a poorly designed draw from that point of view. But the second thing is that the work to rest ratio is, is, is really, is really low. So the, the players, majority of the players, all except the one player engaged at that time, is just standing, waiting, staring at the stars, bored out of their minds. And so one of the things that coaching by, by games does is it engages all the players all of the time. And that's the surest way to bring kids back into your sport. So 
for me, the KPI for all young coaches, particularly at school level, should just be do more kids play the sport next year than played this year. You know what I mean? Do do we grow the number of kids wanting to play? And, and so it must just be about are they engaged all of the time? Are they having fun? Um, and the best way to do that, the shortest way to do that is just by playing games. Man, that's awesome. Uh, two more questions. This might tie in with the last question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What makes a good coach? Very different, uh, Dunks. It, 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 it's very different on the person. You're like, I look at someone like Jake White. If I compare Jake White and John Dobson, uh, Jake's at the Bulls, Dobber obviously with us. Um, I, I lived and coached with Jake at the Brumbies in, I don't know what that was, 2012. They, they couldn't be more different people, but both of them are successful. Uh, and so there isn't a blueprint, and that's actually the beauty of it. You know, I think that the the key thing is that you've got to you've got to uh, you've got to be yourself. Um, and I think too many times in my own career, I wasn't myself, and that just led to sort of unhappiness. So you've got to be yourself, um, and and I think you've got to be clear on a few basic things that you're not going to compromise on. You know, and that might be uh, some on field stuff in terms of the way you want to play. You know, Jake is plays a certain brand of rugby that he deeply believes in. Um, and he understands it very deeply. Um, and he also is a certain type of personality and he runs his environment in a certain way. And the players are very clear. I think that these are his um, kind of rules, you know, and there's there's no flexibility in that. Uh, and I think what that does is bring certainty to the environment and, and as a result of that, he's very successful. Dobbo's set of rules and the way he wants to play is totally different, totally different stuff. But the principle is the same, is that he's not going to negotiate on a, on, on a couple of key things. And that's that's that, I think, takes a lot of introspection, you know, and probably a lot of trial and error, you know, to figure out what are these things that I'm not going to negotiate on over time. Last question, mate. What advice would you give 18-year-old Dave Wessels? Uh, get into finance, eh? Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, sure. Thanks. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that question is like a reflection on, like, are you happy with your journey or whatever so far? And the answer to that is really happy. You know, like, um, it doesn't mean that I haven't had a lot of very difficult times, a lot of great times, and a lot of difficult times. Um, and I think, as I said to you, I probably uh, through through you know difficult end in Melbourne and just just disappointed in a lot of what I did there towards the end like I don't think if I'd had that I would end up in the place I am in now um, and having the success maybe that we're having now because I would have I would have stayed in that space you know if that makes sense um, yeah. so yeah I think I think maybe the, the advice I'd probably give myself which is something I'm trying to do which is not as easy is just um, just don't take yourself so seriously you know like like it's just a game at the end of the day like my mom always says you know like um, and I think if you can treat it like that and you can really enjoy it for that, then I think that brings out a certain type of energy that maybe I was missing for 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 you know times along the way. 